Hello, everyone, and welcome to our pastor's podcast, You Asked. Here in the room with us today is Pastors Chris, and Pastor Brian, and intern, uh, pastoral intern John Mulligan IV, and I am Pastor Justin. We were going over last Sunday's sermon, which was about the sovereignty of God and generated a lot of questions about the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility and human freedom. Pastor Chris, you preached this past Sunday. Could you just give us a little bit of context, uh, kind of recap the sermon before we jump into some of these specific questions? Yeah, we were covering Isaiah chapter 40 for nine weeks and uh, taking a different attribute of God from that, from that chapter. And uh, this past Sunday was on God's sovereignty. And, uh, and what we did is we take, we take the passage from Isaiah 40 and then we just survey, basically we stay in, we call this biblical theology, where we stay in a book, a writer, and we just mine out what he has to say um, in that particular book about a subject. So we are taking a biblical theological view of the book of Isaiah on God's sovereignty. And what we did is we looked at um, how God was sovereign in past, before time began, in determining things, his decree. We talked about how God is sovereign in creation and how he alone um, made everything. He was not consulted on, as Isaiah 40 would say, he was not consulted on how and when he would create things. And then lastly, we talked about God's currently sovereign over, over the events, and we talked about God's sovereignty over things like weather or animals or people or nations, and just kind of surveyed Isaiah over that subject. Okay, so thank you for that summary, Pastor Chris. Um, obviously, there are a thousand questions relating to this topic. It's one that humans have been wrestling with for a very long time. So we'll just work through several different ones that were texted in um, and kind of just go, go rapid fire and, and work through some of these different issues. Um, so let's start with this one. Does the phrase, thy will, not mine be done, indicate that we can do things that are not keeping with God's will? Or would we be insinuating that all things that happen are his will? In other words, man's sin is in his sovereign will. Or would it be better to say that man's sin is allowed under his sovereign hand and used to accomplish his will in spite of us? Yeah, and they, these kind of questions, one of the things I mentioned in the sermon was that we wanted to create attention. All right, that was my goal. I said at the very beginning, there's going to be a lot of questions, which we did. We got a lot of them. That's good. Uh, that's what I wanted. I just wanted to let God speak and let Isaiah speak as, as God is sovereign over all things and just let that tension sit. So this question comes in of really asking the difference between, um, is there a difference, I guess, between saying, um, he says here, man's sin is, is, is my sin, his sovereign will. Uh, is, is our sin part of God's sovereign will or does God just allow it? Um, I would say it's a little bit of semantics there too, um, you know, that, that there isn't much difference in that statement. It sounds better to us to say, we feel better by saying, well, well God just kind of allows it and then kind of works with it. Um, but we, I guess on Sunday, my job is not to quote, let, let God off the hook here. Um, he, he makes it very clear he's sovereign over all things, including our sin. Uh, I think one of the, two of the places that come to mind in Jude, uh, he says there, talks about God as him who is able to keep us from stumbling, meaning that God can, at any moment, cause anyone not to sin. He can prevent anybody from sinning. I think a great example of that is uh, in Genesis 20 with Abimelech and Abraham and how Abimelech was upset with his wife, and, or at least go sleep with her, I suppose, and God kind of 
came to him in a dream and said, don't do this, this is Abraham's wife. And he's like, whoa, I didn't know that, you know. And basically God goes, well, I, I'm the one that kept you from her. Um, so God can, at any moment, prevent sin from occurring. Um, but in God's ultimate plan and ultimate sovereignty, he has decided to allow that to take place. And yet he's still, he's not the author of sin, as James 1 will make clear. He doesn't tempt anybody to sin. Uh, he, there is no sin in him um, in, in many passages of Scripture. So he's not the author of it. It's called the problem of evil. We've, we've all went, uh, wrestled with for, you know, every bit of theology we've ever, ever read. And so um, the point is, is the tension. Sin does exist, and yet be sovereign, and yet God is not the author of sin. And so those are kind of the, that's kind of the tension that does exist and should allow that. Don't go too far with it by saying, well, God's not in control of, of, of everything. Um, and also not saying at the same time God's the author of sin, attention exists. Yeah, there's, there's the ditch on the one side of, of what is known as exhaustive determinism, or perhaps um, fatalism, some would call that, um, where Augustine's got the, a famous quote where he says, not even a, a piece of dust moves unless the hand of God is moving it. There were nothing more than robots here, and God is just pulling the strings, as it were, and every right or wrong thing you do, he's forcing you to do. Uh, clearly, that's in contradiction to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God speaks of God providing a way out from any temptation that's there. Um, so we, we do want to reject the exhaustive determinism on the one side. Um, and yet, as, as Western individuals that have many way, in many ways idolized human freedom or free will, as some might say, uh, we have to recognize that in our particular place in history and in our culture, uh, we despise the sovereignty of God. We want to make ourselves the, the central part of the storyline and our freedom. Um, and, and the Bible really confronts our culture in that way. And, and even in evangelicalism, I think we see a, a head-on collision there a lot of times. You know, I think it's good to differentiate, too, that when you read the scriptures, and part of this beginning of this question talks about the will of God, that you have to be discerning of what you're reading. When you read... Um, there's two different, we would say, kind of wills of God. There's the revealed will of God, or we could call it um, the desired will of God, right? Uh, God desires all men to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. That's true. That doesn't mean everybody will, though, um, which we know. And so there's, there's the revealed will of God, what God desires, and there's what we call the secret or decreed will of God that is, going, that is the determinative action that's going to happen, right? That is what, what actually does happen. And so we have to understand that there are there are two different wills when we talk about that when we start reading scripture and deciding is this is this the the revealed will of God meaning this is what I'm you know, kind of going to Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine the secret things belong to the Lord but the revealed things belong to us so our responsibility is what is God what has God revealed okay let's do that do whatever He's told us to do and leave the secret things the end result what what actually occurs into His hands and make sure we understand those two different things. That's a good segue you mentioned there, because one of the other questions that came in was, what if you love to hear about the sovereignty of God and you believe it, but it doesn't produce love for your neighbor or lost in this world? How can the two be connected? I think that's the root of some of the objection to the sovereignty of God is, doesn't it, in a sense, prevent us from evangelizing and from, from uh, carrying out acts of mercy and, and so forth? Um, 
So, so what would you say to the person who says, I love to hear about the sovereignty of God, but it doesn't produce a desire to, um, to evangelize and to pursue mercy and justice um, as we say it ought to produce in you? You don't really get it if it doesn't produce change in you. It's just like the gospel. You could say, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe Jesus died and rose again, blah, 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 blah. And they have no, no change in their life. It didn't result in any transformation. Well, you don't really believe it then. Because if you really believed it, your life would change. And same with God's sovereignty. If you really understood it and really believed it, it would change the way you see the world. It changed the way you see people. I remember there was uh, John Piper talking about a missionary. His last name was Alexander, and I couldn't think, I can't think of his first name. But he was a missionary. started out believing. He said, he said, I would never be a missionary if I believed that God was sovereign when I first went on the mission field. If I believe in God's absolute sovereignty and I believe in election, all those things, I'd never be a missionary. And he was totally against it. And he said, after 21 years of wrestling with the human heart, I never would have stayed a missionary if I didn't come to believe that God was sovereign over all things, including the human heart. In other words, it, it's what kept him going. You know, it gave him hope that, okay, because God is sovereign, that means and that, that he can overcome any broken, any hardened heart. He can soften any heart that's out there. And because he can, therefore, that gives me hope that someone's going to respond. Well, yeah, God actually appeals to this exact same argument in Acts 13. Paul's in Corinth, he's preaching, and the persecution is intense. He's about to get run out of the city, and he's getting ready to leave. And God appears to him and says, don't leave. I'm going to protect you. No one's going to harm you because I have people in this city who are going to get saved. Yeah. From all human vantage point, you're saying there's no hope of salvation. These people are literally going to kill me tomorrow if I step foot in the street. And God says, no, 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 I've chosen them. They will get saved. I will overcome their hardness of heart. Paul, that my sovereignty here is something for you to embrace as, a, as hope in missions, by no means a preventer of missions or a discourager of missions. Uh, we, we do transition a bit there towards the whole salvation piece, which you didn't touch on on right. Sunday morning very much. It's not really the context of Isaiah 40, um, which I actually appreciated you sticking with the context there and not using it as a launching pad to something else. But it's understandable why someone would ask that question. Does God's sovereignty have limits? How does this play out in salvation? Has God, in fact, chosen who is saved? Yeah, and the way that question begins, does God's sovereignty have limits? Um, no, unless you want to go the philosophical route, you know, can God create a rock big enough that he, whatever can't roll over? Something silly like that, some silly philosophical argument. But in terms of playing out salvation, has he chosen who is saved? Um, yeah, again, we, get, we just go, we always go back to what does it say? What is written? And um, what is written is laid out very plainly, uh, especially Ephesians 1, Gospel of John, 1 Peter, many other places that are going to tell us that God has elected, chosen from the foundation of the world prior to human activity or human thought, not looking down the corners of time, not seeing what people will do and going, oh yeah, so I'm going to choose them. That's nowhere in Scripture. It's foreign to Scripture. Um, what God has done is, before a foundation of the world, chosen those who will be His. He has given an eternity past on a certain date, and He's going to draw us to, to Himself on that date. Now, it's also important to know that just because God is sovereign over the end doesn't mean that God's not sovereign also over the means. So God has means by which He will bring people to Himself, and that's you and me. You know, that's, 
That's us. That's the gospel. That's the word of God. That's the preaching of the gospel. That's the living out the gospel that God has sovereignly chosen to use those means to bring people to himself that he has chosen for the foundations of the world. So it's important to keep all of those intact. It's uh, freeing to me to understand that because as I consider previously, my thought would have been that somehow it's my responsibility to get them saved. And it's freeing to me and my responsibility is to to share, to, to understand that I'm, I am salt, I'm light. And so my approach to evangelism. Yeah, I think it's like Charles Spurgeon once said, talked about the gospel kind of like a lion and in a cage. He said, just just open the cage and let him go. Like, don't try to defend him. Don't try to stand out in front of him and argue for him. Just let it go. Let, let him go. Let the lion go out and do what it's, what it's going to do. And that's kind of with the word of God. Just uh, unleash it and let it go without having to feel like I need to manipulate. I need to somehow, um, you know, really really persuade people and my, my intellect in some way or my arguments to try to make them, you know, agree to the gospel so they come to faith. It's like, look, the Bible's going to tell us that there, there's no one good, none righteous, no, not one, and that they all have turned aside and that everyone's running away. And there's no amount of human logic, argument, persuasion that we could possibly give that would make someone come to, come to Christ. It is a supernatural, sovereign thing that God... God has to do, but at the same time, it's something that God has sovereignly chosen to use us in that process. Think about all the times when we've babbled and couldn't hardly get the words out and the person understood. Yeah. Through the Holy Spirit did that work, not us. And the opposite side, where you feel like, man, this was a perfect argument I had, and they just look at you with straight face like, I no. <laughs> You're like, okay, yeah. Well, and the, the tension there is, again, it needs to be affirmed, because you've got some on one side of things, you might say a hyper-Calvinist, view that will deny things like God does not love all people and say things like that that it's like no that's clearly taught in scripture Second Corinthians 5.15 he died for all mm-hmm. um, and so you can't you can't fall off the horse on the, the sovereignty side and, and twist the text to say things it doesn't um, and yet at the same time there's probably a greater temptation at least in our as I said our place in history and in our culture to twist the text to say that God hasn't chosen and to try and find any way possible to deny that. And um, no, it's better to come back to what do the scriptures clearly teach. They clearly teach God is chosen. They clearly teach man is responsible. Um, and exactly how that pieces itself together, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. We're not going to be able to map it out fully. from Isaiah again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's right. a, Isaiah 55. It's so true. But we talked about on Sunday that the unfortunate part about any theological system, you know, the theological systems can be helpful in terms of trying to help put all the verses together in the Bible in one particular subject and put them into a, a nice, neat package and have them fit all together. Um, and that, that's a, it's a good practice. I'm not against systematic theology. But the problem becomes in systems like, say, Calvinism or Arminianism is that you, you, you make verses fit your system and you kind of throw out the others. And, um, and the fact of the matter is, is that the Bible gives us tension. And that's okay. We don't like tension because we, we want everything to fit in a nice little box, tie the bow up, and everything fit. God doesn't fit in a little box. And he refuses to fit in a little box. And so you need to, we talked about on Sunday, the doctrine of concurrence that you know, B.B. Warfield uh, kind of came up with to kind of help explain, hey, two parallel tracks here. God is completely sovereign, man is completely responsible, and the answer is yes. 
And, and you need to keep those in mind. The sovereignty of God gives us hope and encouragement and empowers us and gives us boldness. And the, the responsibility of man spurs us on as well. It gives us boldness and gives us responsibility and kind of kicks us. Like we got to get moving. God is holding us accountable to the life that we have. We have talents. We have investments. How are we investing them? We will be held accountable for those. Both of those are motivations to move forward, right? And we need both of them. We can't, we can't sacrifice one or the other. Sure. I mean, there's, there, man is responsible to do these things. God is sovereign over the weather, right? He can determine if it rains or if it doesn't. If it doesn't, I'm still responsible to water my garden and grow that food. And if God chooses to send rain, fantastic. I don't have to water today. But if he doesn't, I'm responsible to do that. You know, I, I'm responsible to share the gospel with my, my friends, with my neighbors. And if God chooses to reach them through a radio broadcast... Praise God, he saved him in that way, but I still have that responsibility to take action as well. Um, are there any books, any further reading that um, you guys would recommend, a sermon perhaps you've heard to um, you know, further resource on this topic for our listeners today? Yeah, I, I like, um, John MacArthur has some good stuff on that subject. Um, you can look up, um, I think of... Um, John Piper is another author on that. He does a good job with some of the missionary biographies and things he does. Has a way of, of connecting. So you'll find in the missionary modern missionary movement is that they were all very passionately and deeply convicted about God's sovereignty. <laughs> and that's what launched them. That's what sent them out on the mission field was, was that commitment. Um, that they knew that, you know, John Patton, my favorite missionary biography, you know, well, he was... He called himself a Scottish Covenanter, right? That was a, a, a Calvinism, you know, it was kind of his thing. And he was very extreme on that side. And yet he went out to the ends of the earth to, to cannibals who wanted to eat him, you know, that, to give him the gospel. But, but he did it because he believed God was sovereign, you know. And so the, the, there are books on that by Piper are really good, but that one. We recommended uh, A.W. Peake's book on Sunday, uh, The Sovereignty of God, which is a great book on it. It's, my, it's where I first kind of cut my teeth and kind of blew my world up of like, wow, God's that big. Um, it's just like any book. I mean, there are some things in there like, yeah, I don't quite hold to maybe some of the statements he would say in there. But overall, it was a very, very helpful book. Tim Keller has one sermon that's, that's really helpful in kind of wrestling through the tension. It's called, Does God Control Everything? Uh, I would highly recommend it. It's, uh, it's on his podcast, and you can find it on YouTube, about 32 minutes. Tim Keller, Does God Control Everything? Uh, it's a helpful resource there. So we do hope in, in closing that this conversation has been helpful for all of you. You can always reach out to any of us if you have further questions, or always at the end of the sermon you can text in those questions. You have been listening to You Asked.